0: Welcome to another episode of Buzz, the animal care and welfare podcast by Animal Concepts, and the Practical Animal Welfare Science, The Pause Platform. I'm your host, Sabrina Brando, and I'm delighted to welcome today Luke Harding, who is the Blue Iguana Conservation Programme Manager on Grand Cayman. Welcome, Luke.
1: Hi, Sabrina. Welcome, and thank you very much for inviting me onto the podcast.
0: Yes, very much looking forward to... uh, I've never visited, but of course, you know, following your work through... Fabulous photos and stories, and all that work that you have been doing there, with of course, you know, the local team and everybody else. So, that we're going to hear all about it from you. And uh, perhaps you could start with a short introduction on, you know, who you are and how you, you know, came to do what you do today.
1: Uh, yeah, of course. So, my name is Luke Harding, and I'm the Conservation Programs Manager for Blue Iguana Conservation here on Grand Cayman in the Caribbean. I work under the umbrella of the National Trust for the Cayman Islands. Uh, obviously, as the title would indicate, my main role here is to manage the conservation programme for the blue iguana, Cyclora lewisi, which is an endemic species to Grand Cayman and was once considered the world's rarest iguana. So it's an iconic species and project uh, and I'm very lucky to be here. My past stems of over 14 years experience, predominantly within zoological collections in the United Kingdom, and also with quite a large range of insectual field experience over those years. So it's been a been a slow and long journey from here. I feel like I'm just starting out, but I'm at an exciting stage in my career with an exciting project and a really passionate team.
0: Wonderful. Really looking forward to hearing more about that. You mentioned to me that you uh, studied conservation biology. So can you maybe talk a little bit about that and why you wanted to study that? And also, you know, a lot of people. Uh, younger people or sometimes older people who are trying to make a career uh, change they're looking for you know nuggets of wisdom and experiences on you know how can you get a job in zoos so perhaps you could talk a little bit about you know your degree and then how you landed your first job in a zoo
1: yeah of course my journey into conservation it, it's not that remarkable really in the sense that it's not much different to what I imagine is a similar story for many I was very lucky. I grew up in a wildlife orientated, passionate house, um, which, you know, my parents encouraged me to be out in nature, to engage with wildlife. Some of my fondest childhood memories were going to zoos. Uh, we had a lot of animals at home in the past, mainly dogs. My family were involved in training service dogs around the world. So that was really interesting childhood to be brought up and and gave me a passion for that and then I wasn't really considering it as a career I'm not one of them who knew from day one I wanted to to work in conservation but as time grew on I remember as a six-year-old child I drew a penguin and a a picture once that wanted to be a penguin keeper which you're pleased to know I grew out of but um, it was a great a great stepping stone to do it and then I went through school um, I'm not one of those people who consider school as the best years of their lives. If anyone's listening, who did, I'm not one of those. Um, school was okay. I went because I had to, but my first real passion, I guess, started at college. At the time where I'd had enough, didn't want to go to A levels, um, was encouraged too because I was academically capable, but I wasn't in the mindset of wanting to do it. And I think looking back now, that's absolutely fine. And I went to college to do a BTEC at ree's Heath. And I had the best time. I guess it was the first time where if I could have opted to go in or not school, I would have not. But college, I would have. I loved it. It really introduced me to the field in the first ways. I got to work with animals every day. It didn't really feel like school, to be honest. Um, And it was a passion subject. I was passionate about learning about, you know, whether it was nutrition, biology. You know, I couldn't get enough of it. I wanted to learn as much as I could, which was such a contrast to what I was forced to do in other times at school so for me it really sparked it so I was a bit of a late comer to the academics of seeing the importance of it and that environment was the right environment for me even though it was pushed that that wasn't the way I should have gone you know actually I think it's important sometimes to to know yourself and that was the right environment for me at that stage in my career Um, and that really led to a passion and during that time you know I developed friendships I developed knowledge of other things and actually fast-tracked up my college course with one of my best friends and we actually left early and went to India um, at the very young age we went out to Madras Crocodile Bank um, to volunteer our time and to gain some in-situ field experience and also captive management and that was kind of a life-changing moment for me a moment we made happen you know we contacted them there wasn't a formal volunteer progress program at the time we contacted them we were passionate about doing it spent a lot of time convincing the parents at that age that traveling to India as the pair of us was safe and a good idea um but finally we got that and we got there and you know it was a real looking back now it was probably a career-changing moment for me um and I think for my colleague who came with me so it was a great moment at that age to go away be exposed to different standards of husbandry what I'd seen in you over here the first time really I saw any form of conservation breeding that I knew of at the time without going behind the scenes in zoos it's hard to always know but it was right there for the seeing and some of the challenges that we'll talk about later that working in different countries can bring so a life-changing moment and kind of fueled that you know this is what I want to do you know people make careers in this this is where I see myself going and then I came back and went to university so I went study through Nottingham Trent University um, and actually finished my degree through the Open University because during my time, I had the opportunity, I was very fortunate during college to have had two weeks work experience at Chester Zoo and their herpetology team. And that kind of sparked a passion and interest and connections with some remarkable people who are still influential to this day in my career and my development. And, you know, that stayed in touch. And then they had their internship programs for a year. So I left university halfway through to go and do that. I never really looked back. I, I got in through the door and it became a complete passion and obsession for me to want to work in that industry, want to work with that taxonomic group in particular, although I love all wildlife. Um, And then I made the challenging decision through opportunities that arose um, to continue my studies whilst working, which was a real challenge. Um, One, I would encourage people to do if it's the right step for them, but also be cautious that it's a huge undertaking. And to some degree, you take some of the the life experience of university out of it but at the same time I was getting other experience so that started off then my move from an intern to securing my first zoo job and then I moved through multiple collections over the years I was in zoological collections in the UK and you know that was a wonderful experience I've worked at big zoos smaller zoos you know I've been a big clog in a small wheel and a large clog in a small clog in a bigger wheel and there you know there's so much pros and cons and growth and it's sometimes seen as a bit controversial to move around, and I think that's something that should be lost. I think that moving, you know, obviously you want to do it the right way, but growth and development is important and exposure to other collections, managing good, bad, indifferent—they all have their pros and cons. I think it's a really important part of growth and development, um, exposure and experience. It teaches you to be a more rounded professional person, but also in the industry. So that's roughly how I went into it. Not particularly remarkable. Um, and hugely down to you know little bits of luck but I don't really like the word luck it, it comes down to hard work when you're in but there's no doubt that people have been influential so I would encourage people if you want to do it I've seen people and been fortunate to work with some of the best people that have come into the industry at all different ages through all different routes and if you put your head down you work hard you you know help people and people help you back then it's achievable at any age any stage and to any level, I've seen people coming later on in life who are now in some of the most senior positions and are some of the most influential people I've worked with and met.
0: Wonderful, that's really great. All these, you know, personal experience and and as you say, you know, what is right for you and knowing yourself and yeah, sometimes you know you have to take that leap of okay, I'm going to go for this job and, you know, find another way to finish my degree. And yeah, that's really wonderful that you shared that. And I know this podcast is all about you, but I couldn't help overhearing, you know, your parents, you know, training service dogs all around the world. Um, So I don't know whether, you know, you could just speak a little bit about that, because of course, you know, that's very interesting uh, before we move uh, back to all the magnificent work that you do. What a great environment
1: yeah so my parents were they loved dogs they did some showing in the earlier days but predominantly my parents worked with dogs within the police force and that kind of led to them being involved in training for other things so i grew up around a working dog environment i was very fortunate to travel europe why they competed and and things went on so i kind of grew up in an environment where you know animal training was a key fundamental part of day-to-day life um, I competed with my own dog in different sports from a young age and that was a really important development milestone for me personally because it allowed me to obviously I adopt pets and love them to bits. And they were extended members of the family, but it also taught me that there was um, introduced me to the concept of animals having another role as well as being loved, as being something you value that you know you could have working animals should have animals that weren't petted, which turned out to be really important for me in my long-term development in zoos, because I understood that you you can still love an animal and have another role as well as that. So that was a really important environment for me to grow up in. It was a very mature environment, obviously. Um, Service dogs are amazing animals, but different levels of difficulty means, you know, you have to be mature and sensible around them. So, and it also introduced me to positive reinforcement training at a very young age. I, I knew of it. I knew how to follow rules, procedures. And, you know, I was exposed to that environment from as young as I can remember. There's pictures of me at two or three um, on dog fields while they're being trained for, you know, sniffer dogs or protection dogs. So, yeah, it was a really interesting environment and it taught me a lot of hard work and dedication, you know, up at, before school to do the dogs, go to school, come back, train weekends, traveling into Europe to compete and to work. So, yeah, it's a long story, but it, it was a really important environment for me. And it's, I certainly wouldn't be where I am now or who I am now, if it wasn't for that environment. So I'm very grateful for it. And it underpinned a lot of what I managed to take forward. And one thing it really showed me now looking back is how many transferable skills. So when people say, oh, I've never worked with this or I've not done this, actually a lot of the fundamental principles are are similar and transferable if you understand one. It's just a matter of gaining more understanding and being able to adapt those skills to work with other taxes. So yeah, important milestone for me that at the time I didn't necessarily know
0: yes absolutely such important information there because you know sometimes it's not that it's actually not that easy to get a job in a zoo or an aquarium or even in a wildlife center or so on but there's so many different ways that you can work with different animals in different disciplines so that was really a great um you know sidetrack but such an important and i
1: think it's also really important that i touched on briefly but one thing I feel really passionate about is encouraging people that academically qualified and academically capable are two two very different things and you know everyone has their limits their ceilings which they know or people will but just because you are capable doesn't mean right there at a time or a moment it's the right decision for you whether that be financially or just life stage that, you know you want to break from it so I think they're really two different things and people get confused sometimes that you know you can you can go back to academia it doesn't make you a failure and some people choose not to go that route and I think it's important to understand that doesn't mean you're not capable of doing skills that people who are qualified does it just means you haven't gone down that route or you haven't gone down that route yet
0: absolutely yes there's so many different ways of knowing and working and of course you know only because you have a degree in biology it doesn't make you necessarily a good animal care staff professional so there's just So many different skills that are needed. And um, yeah, I think that's really great that you're making that distinction there. And also again, talking about transferable skills and you know how that might help you not only get those skills but also, you know, put you on the radar for other people who might be looking for people with certain skills, even though you haven't worked with that particular species. So, yeah, absolutely. Thank you for so much for sharing. And now, you know, of course, we go back. You talked about the taxa. You're interested in all kinds of wildlife, but you're specifically interested in amphibians and reptiles. So perhaps you could talk a little bit to um, you know the care of animals and management of amphibians and reptiles.
1: Yes, of course. So yeah, my main interest is have told you it's amphibians and reptiles have always been a passion for me i guess i like the outside but one thing that always fascinated me with them from a very young age is the challenge of keeping them i was always very and i know it's not this simple now with all my years but to me having a mammal that you can put out in a in a british environment and it adapts and survives was never as appealing and challenging as being able to have to create these environments and microhabitats and work with species that you know categorically almost refused to survive if they weren't kept to a minimal level and that kind of really drove a passion and an interest in me to to do that and there was almost so much unexplored there were so many species that haven't been kept Um, they only occur in hot parts of the world which in my later years I'm all about because I'm really not a fan of the cold so um, it just seemed like the perfect fit for me to do that and then as I started getting into the industry and more interested it you know became a real passion because they're a very underrepresented not always underrepresented but under misunderstood speed taxonomic group and not necessarily had the same levels of care and focus that others have and my journey into reptiles amphibians is quite stepped and I think that's quite important as well in the sense that when I first started out my passion was keeping and breeding reptiles and amphibians you know it's almost frowned upon now to say that because we understand now the importance of population management and the wider purpose but i make no bones by fact when i was young my goal was you know i wanted to keep and breed everything i could you know the more reptiles and amphibians i could get exposed to the more species i could work with like everyone you know i had dreams of working with komodo dragons giant salamanders crocodiles um and, you know, looking back now, I sometimes go, oh, what was I like? You know, I, I didn't utilize or enjoy some of the lesser species at the time. But I think that's an important development milestone is, you know, you, can't, you don't want to curb that passion. Um, and it never has been lost. But then over time, as I worked at different collections and was involved within the zoological industry more and exposing myself to in-situ field experiences, about well, my mindset changed my passion didn't but my mindset started to change away from the doing it but more to the why The you know why are we keeping these species and what's the bigger picture goals that keeping these animals can obtain and if we want to achieve those goals what do we need to do and started looking at how can we utilize our living collections to make sure that you know we're informing conservation decisions and that it isn't just a case of breeding animals Um, which is still exciting to this day hatching reptiles that passion has never gone it will never go but I think it's it's not enough on its own for me now I think there's a wider scope so I've been through quite a transformation journey of development in myself I think for what keeping reptiles and amphibians means to me. but the passion for the taxonomic group has never changed it never will and actually gets more fascinating Um, the more we think we know the less we turn out we know and what i really feel passionate about is that you can never be an expert in this field even if you ever achieve it you achieve it for a really finite amount of time because this is an ever evolving field and it's continuously changing developing and the only thing certain is what you know now in 10 years someone's probably going to come along and prove that you you were wrong and you didn't know it so it's one you've got to constantly be reviewing and adapting and growing and you know that's not always something people associate with zookeeping profession and I say that by people being outside of the profession you see it as a very basic job um, and you know we in the profession know that's completely untrue but for me reptiles and amphibians have really been a pioneer in changing that mindset they've really been the forefront of showing the importance of captive populations whether that be ex-situ or even in-situ captive populations such as you know the atalopus, projects with the sateki the golden frogs there's some real pioneers you know amphibians really led the way in the role that zoological collections and captive collections had in supporting crisis response with the fungus. and the science that goes behind keeping them the challenges of keeping populations long term within a captive environment and for multiple generations but also the financial implications of that And also the difficulties to achieve goals, you know, to bring a species in and think you'll have it for a few years and put it out. So all those challenges, it was really at the forefront. You know, kitchen fungus is a terrible problem for amphibian populations globally. But it was a great career opportunity for those of us in the field. It really brought out opportunities to get involved in field research and learn to shift the priorities. When I grew up, I really wanted to work with crocodiles, with my own interest areas that I had. And amphibians weren't that high on it. I was interested. But professionally it became an area where there was opportunities development field work and a real passion grew so that's kind of how my start and my interest in reptiles and amphibians started and how it's developed over the last few years
0: yes and it's so interesting that you know every one of us in our career in our personal development of course many of these things are integrated and connected that we have you know just because of the way that we work, that we get educated by, you know, the work that we do, but also perhaps the studies that we do, there's so many ways that we are learning and, you know, and then we, often see those changes right in our in ourselves like if I look back 30 years ago how I started with marine mammals it's very different how I look at things today and and also learning that it's dynamic and we have to you know have continuous personal development and you know learning from each other because as you mentioned there's just so many different professions also right we all have to work together some people have um you know a degree or work experience in certain breeding techniques others you know contribute about light and the others about nutrition and and there's so many different parts and we cannot know it all right so it's such an important part you mentioned earlier that uh, something about conservation breeding and You know, the specifics of certain species like the mountain chicken frog and the golden mantella frog. Can you talk a little bit more about your in situ field experiences with these flagship species?
1: Yeah, my exposure really to in situ field experience came during my time working at zoos. And like most people, it started really from a curiosity of, um, you know, India exposed me slightly to it, although it was still more in a captive environment. But we did spend some time in Western Ghats and see snakes. But I think. As you develop in the zoos you get a real passion for wanting to know more about the species in the wild to uh, me that led me to go to south africa um, to do some snake work and that really opened up a whole new world for me about what we could learn from the field but also to some degree how little we understood in captivity especially for this taxonomic group And that really fueled a passion. And then as I moved through some of my experiences in different zoological collections, I started to understand through just, you know, time, development, opportunities, training, and the role of zoos in some of these key species and within ex-situ population management for them. And, you know, one of the most iconic of that is the mountain chicken frog, Leptodactylus phallax. It's a frog that's only found on two islands in the Caribbean, the island of Montserrat and the island of dominica and it was a kind of an iconic project that i went across as a volunteer and they were doing some work after Kitrid fungus pretty much destroyed the population within both islands but iconically on Montserrat, there was some work done to reintroduce the species back there through releases and the opportunity came up from a job switch to move and that was a big moment for me i was in a higher position at another zoo and had the opportunity to stay but this was felt really passionate for me like it was the right moment i really wanted to add this of field work to my CV and really see a project so I went out to Montserrat and joined the team there for a few months on their tracking and release monitoring of these released frogs Um, a remarkable moment again in my career I met a fantastic manager of the program who was there at the time she worked for Doral she was you know she was excellent she was really good at developing our skills and it really taught the basic principles of what field works like and done and then from that, an opportunity came for me to go across islands and hop across to Dominica um, to their project. That was at a very different stage because they were actually attempting an in situ captive breeding facility on the island, which was very different because before that, mountain chickens really had been um, an ex situ project taken to zoos and kind of an iconic one, because most of what we understood or knew about the mountain chicken frogs, certainly their reproductive biology, was actually described through captive frogs and zoos at Doral, actually, in one of their papers from an early team, so it was kind of an icon for me that this was a species that zoos had been fundamental in conserving and that actually ex situ population was underpinning most of what we knew so there i went to dominica at a young age and a bit inexperienced to it and it was my first real eye-opener for the challenges of managing um facilities in situ you know suddenly your zoo budget is gone your enclosure climate controlled rooms are gone your supplies your support network you're out there with Basically, only your fundamental knowledge of how to keep these species and challenges. Now, obviously, in situ, some challenges are a lot easier. But when it comes to amphibians, amphibians are important bioindicators. And they're one of the first things that tend to fade from an ecosystem if anything goes wrong. And in captivity, it's pretty similar. If the environment's not correct, then you don't just tend to see poor condition, you tend to lose the animals. So there felt a lot of pressure at those days to take over this project from people and support the team out there in Dominica to really push forward and see whether we could manage the frogs there. But this was just full of challenges that you don't expect really, you know, husbandry differences, simple things like simple it wasn't, but simple things that we take for granted, um like feeding the frogs. So in zoos, obviously we order our food in, in it arrives, it's an expense, but it's it's fairly simple program you know we've got we feed we feed out it's not something we give too much consideration other than unavailability but there we arrive in situ and it's not an option we have to think well how do we feed these animals the capacity we need it wasn't possible to import food because by doing that you could introduce species into the environment so you suddenly had this challenge of we've got to be able to feed these animals so a lot of the time went on collecting wild insects learning to breed them and then learning to breed them in a volume that we could feed frogs enough because once we bring them into captivity we obviously have an ethical responsibility to ensure the best standards of husbandry practices so that became a real standout for me from that period in my career just how complicated it is how resource heavy and human resource heavy but financially heavy these commitments are and the challenges of working in what we would have called at the time suboptimal conditions you know you can't always get everything you would want And you've still got to produce results and keep these animals to the best of the ability. So it was a real changing experience for me. And that was one of my first exposures to that environment and to the challenges that can come with it. And that kind of replicated across my career. I've been very fortunate. I got to spend some time in Adasi Bay in Madagascar with the gold of Mantella work that was going on there. I had multiple visits right at the beginning when the first frogs, the facility was being discussed. Uh, being built and the first frogs were talking about being brought into captivity and then later on once the facility was built i was fortunate to be able to go back and look at again lending some experience to husbandry techniques and capacity building in situ with staff members which was really exciting process especially at that age and i was thrilled to be able to share any idea i could talk amphibians and reptiles all day at anyone who would listen um and that, you know, that was really exciting for me. But again, you know, it was more exposure to different challenges. You know, we'd seen some challenges before, but suddenly there was more challenges that we hadn't expected that was really important that we, that we learned to find a way around dealing with. Um, we had to teach husbandry skills, so trial the room, look at different methods, even simple things like building enclosures was a new skill. How do you build glass enclosures? How do you drill them? The logistical challenges the realism that things don't always go to plan. So it's always important to have a plan B. Some materials weren't available. So they really were massive learning curves. You know, animal husbandry at the time almost became secondary to the learning experience. Different cultures, the the challenges of taking what you principally learned the basics and foundations of within my work in zoological collections and applying it in a different environment was a real skill set. And I think really showed one development area that, we must be conscious of within captive collections as well, which is that we're really understanding husbandry and biology and what the whys, because if we're not careful, sometimes we just learn the hows, and we learn routines and that's not a criticism. Routines are important, but actually it's when you go to these environments, you really have to understand that when you can't always have the ideal equipment, the ideal scenarios or what you learned on that sometimes you're very routine learn you learn to keep an animal in a certain environment and not necessarily to keep the animals when that's not the case so it was a real eye opener to me about the importance of using evidence based husbandry approaches the importance of record keeping the importance of moving towards a proactive response to husbandry rather than reactive sometimes you have to be reactive but trying to get ahead of issues problems challenges so it was a real eye opener to me on many platforms and really showed me I think at those stages that what I was doing in zoos was much bigger than my day-to-day work. That I could use the skills I was developing, the knowledge we were developing, and actually it could have real significant conservation impact out in other countries.
0: Yes, and I think like you mentioned earlier, sometimes people who are not necessarily in our community know how you know we work together, how we learn from each other, which skills you know are needed, and also how do you you know transfer skills and how zoos and aquariums are making a difference for species conservation. And, you know, these sorts of collaborations. I think a lot of times it's not necessarily obvious how, you know, facilities are working in um, in different countries and, you know, really helping in a protection of a species. And also the exchanges that happen between people who are working in situ and ex situ and learning from each other. So, and the, Point to the why uh, versus the how, I think is a very important one as well to really be able to decide, okay, how what are we going to do and why are we going to do it this way or that way? Or like you say, sometimes you don't have the the, the same materials or the the same conditions. But you can still, you know, perhaps come up with something else that is going to make it happen. And understanding the why will help people really think along those lines in a much clearer fashion uh, than if you're just focusing on, well, this is how we learned it or how we did it. And, uh, and we had just recently had a great podcast interview uh, with Dr. Francis Cabana, who obviously, you know, when we're talking about nutrition, you mentioned, you know, the flies and having to go insect hunting and then learning how to breed them, which can be extremely valuable also, of course, in other locations. But sometimes you don't have the, the same, you know, foods available, but then, you know, you focus on the nutritional aspects. And so focusing and why is that important versus, you know, we always have to feed uh, what they would eat in the wild because we can't, you know, necessarily... Um, get that and and obviously you did by going out there with insects but this why and how and again when you talk about capacity building that those aspects are so important um, when you are when we are teaching and working with people just like it's important for us to learn that right
1: yeah I can I completely agree and I think within this conversation context that you know we are seeing the paradigm shift now we're seeing a mentality change within certainly within zoological collections during my time in it where you know keep this is becoming an understood direction for the future and we're seeing this shift away from keepers just being keepers and encouraged to document record what they're doing and move and I I think that's really important and will grow in strength you know in my time it's only a personal opinion but I often find that zoological collections are almost stuck in a apologetic culture they almost from the instant people come into the industry to leave people are almost apologetic for existing and it's a really odd thing that I've not seen in many other industries that i've even met people in or worked in but we apologize for everything almost apologize for existing apologize for the past of course zoological collections have passed a journey of growth so does everything the nhs has a past you know medical procedures are nothing on what they are now and i think it's really important that we we shift out of that and look at really making sure which people are becoming so much better at is in explaining the value that our expertise has um, the impact it can have and the reasons that you know it's needed Um, good and bad so I think when we're seeing that mind shift I think this is really just the start of the movement we will see into the modern day zoo and the impact that the modern day I don't even call them keepers now but scientists that they are can have them around the world globally for conservation.
0: Yes absolutely it's really you know I think also when we're saying keeper it's also a word when we're talking about history that's where it came from right we were trying to keep the animals and we had a certain way today we hear caregiver we have caretaker Um, so those words already convey something different and of course today we have seen a, a massive shift also to of course the education of anybody really working in the zoo even though the veterinarian is the only if you like regulated profession you know, modern zoos and aquariums, but also same trees, wildlife centers, a lot of different facilities where people are caring for animals, whether they are in a in a junior or in a curator or manager position, people have different backgrounds from biology to psych, psychology and zoology, and they have you know continuous you know working groups and training. And so, like you say, you know, when we're not uh, sometimes there's this joke. I'm sure you've heard it. You know, the teacher who's standing in front of you know a, a, a habitat and somebody's cleaning in there, and you know, the teacher will tell the children, "That's what happens if you don't study," right? Um, kind of this uh, perception of that is what um, a person does when they work in a zoo. They just kind of feed the animals and clean and, and that's all, but not really knowing what our profession is about. So, and I think, you know, just like we have... Changed in these ways, we are also luckily changing in the way we communicate about what are all the things that people in zoos are doing today in different roles, whether they are working in conservation or education and caring for the animals, and often a combination of that. So, uh, yeah, absolutely. And the other thing that I think is really important is that there's a lot more attention to um, training, you know, learning from each other, and you know, training locally and working locally, and not just you know from the outside coming in and uh, saving the species or saving the day but really you know focusing on on that you know importance of collaboration and learning from you know the the countries and the cultures and the facilities that we are in when we go uh, places so and of course you already mentioned you've been in lots of different places working in lots of different uh, facilities and in different countries you talked about different cultures and attention to that and you know you of course also mentioned you really like warmer weather so you're very (laughs) lucky to be on Grand Cayman it's your pictures are absolutely stunning and the animals you work with uh, even more so I think it's it's real time to hear more about the Grand Cayman blue iguana so tell us about how you ended up there and uh, and how you're leading uh, some of the conservation efforts for these animals.
1: Yeah of course I'm really fortunate to have had the opportunity to you know, apply and get the position of conservation programs manager here. And that's a really exciting journey. So the blue iguana, like I said, is an endemic reptile to Grand Cayman. And it really is a remarkable story of conservation optimism. Um, in 2002, there was less than 25 blue iguanas left in the world. They were functionally extinct. uh, They were critically endangered and there wasn't really much hope. And through what was the blue iguana recovery program, but now blue iguana conservation, after rebranding that's population number has been has risen and we have released over a thousand animals back to the wild so it really is a remarkable story of conservation success to this point or achievements and it's a really a remarkable history of development at that time when this program started there really was no in-situ breeding facilities for cyclora the rock there's very little known so it's really been a journey and a project of learning as you go along and a great example of leaving a species to the point where there's hardly any left. It's, it's a sexier story, if you will. It's an interesting press. It can get more money and drive, but actually it's a great example of no one really paying attention until they were nearly gone. And that puts you in a very difficult starting position because there really was nothing known about this species. And then we just have a few pairs left, which doesn't leave you much room for error, for mistakes. So this remarkable program history um, has really led to this point. And What I think is really fascinating about this project is now, 30 years later, we sit here with a conservation dependent species still. And that's, I think, really important lesson that this was always seen as a short term program in the sense that, you know, we could breed these iguanas, put them back out. And that would be job done. And in some ways, when you look at the numbers that that appears to be the case, but actually the greater picture here is that we do still have a conservation dependent species, a species that's struggling with zero small amounts to zero recruitment in the wild, that the challenges that drove this species to near extinction in the first place haven't been dealt with. If anything, they're actually worse. So really in essence, it's about being learning to celebrate the success up to this point and the remarkable achievements that have been made but also not sitting on those morals. You know, this is a real tipping point for the project now where we even continue to move towards sustained conservation success, or we watch the species slide back. And I think this long-term commitment to a conservation project is something that people often overlook. And certainly in my experience of dealing with people projects and discussions with some of the remarkable long-term projects like the Doral Run and other places. is this legacy that your conservation is not a quick fix. There's very few species where there's an example that you could come in, make some minor changes or big changes and in a few years, be out. This exit strategy never works like that. So we've moved here into an interesting phase of the program. Um, it's a difficult time to keep sustained funding coming in as a project, the pandemic certainly doesn't help, but also the fact that the situation is slightly better for the species and that the programme has been running for so long makes funding actually really challenging, challenging to go to donations and bodies that you haven't already received funding from, challenging to keep people engaged because everybody's very engaged when there's a crisis and you see this often quite extreme flush of funding that will come in, these little pockets in response to an emergency or a crisis, which is critical. But what's even harder is long-term, sustained funding, so that we continue the work we need, continue the monitoring we need. Um, so Blue Awareness has been through this shift, this shift away from this target to get to a thousand animals, and now it has. Um, we've just finished, and are about to publish in the next week our action plan for the next five years, um, and that will lead us into you know what does this look like now? What does the future look like? How do we achieve the goals we're looking for? How do we deal with some of the threats? Because without that plan, without that focus, really all we've achieved is to buy time. We've bought ourselves enough time now to, to try to fix some of these issues that drove that species down. So and that sometimes people think that's playing down the achievement. It's not at all, but it's important, even through success, that we keep realistic because the situation, as we know, from so many conservation stories can change so quickly. What's really interesting with blue iguanas, is, is in my time here is it's been about developing it. So for a long, long time, it was one of the world leading projects and in many aspects still was, but what's really important. And we spoke about it a bit with development, continuous development as professionals is continually moving that needle, continuously making sure that we're updating our methods are certainly from a captive husbandry point of view from a conservation breeding, that it's a continuously changing field. And it's important that we're, we're changing with it. And that is a lot easier to do sometimes with a project that's not been so successful. But actually, it can be a real challenge when a project's been so successful to keep it evolving, because there's almost if it isn't broke, don't fix it formula. And that can be a real challenge to look at something and see the difference. So my passion, a lot of the time comes with conservation breeding. And the husbandry of reptiles and amphibians is something I care deeply about. I feel really passionate about and their welfare and how we monitor that. And how we move forward and really trying to encourage a shift that we've seen in other taxonomic groups between alive and optimal. And there is big differences between those. So yes, you can keep species alive, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we're keeping that species are optimal. And then while our welfare indicated you know, reptiles for and amphibians for a long time, the one of the sole indications of reptiles was obviously it was just alive, but that it was breeding. So if the animal bred, then we would, you know, see that as success, and that means we we've got it perfect and we know everything about it that's a really low bar there's very few other taxonomic groups where breeding would be it may be a indicator something you use within it but it isn't the sole one so we've really started to evaluate everything on the program now looking at the fitness of our animals across generations the nutritional health of our animals looking at the medical health of our animals as well from a disease perspective But also looking at their welfare development and fitness, you know, we do see effects and this is still new ground within reptiles, but we do see effects of captivity, both on the welfare of these animals from a a mental point of view, but also a physical development point of view. So one thing we really struggle with in the captive environment for reptiles is to develop muscle it's a really difficult thing and often shows a big discrepancy between our captive animals and the wild animals which for a long time we always used to consider to be a weight issue something related to diet but likelihood is it's just muscle again in a reptile to develop muscle can be really difficult and it can be a challenge because the drivers that we understand to make reptiles move they're often drivers such as food such as mating such as threats or predation and those drivers are very difficult to stimulate food one's easy but the others in in a captive environment without compromising the welfare of ethics what we're doing so and we don't have enough understanding so for any sort of removal of food or limited amount you would have to make sure that you understand that that's normal within that animal's parameters so that you don't compromise that so there's so many challenges that we've got to think of and be continuously evaluating and this project's a great success with breeding but we have now, over the years, proven correlations between diet and breeding success. We have learned more about how to pair these animals. And now as these animals go back out to the wild in some numbers and for the first time well, ever in recorded history, but certainly in the last 30 years, we have a population now we can learn from in the wild. And as we're watching that population and studying it, we're learning new things. Evidence is coming to us. Some of our hypotheses are being proved to be correct. But we're also learning things we didn't know about the species. And it's important that we adapt the captive environment to achieve those goals as well. Because although our facility, no animals stay there long term, some of our animals can be there for sustained periods of years. And that's enough time to, to see issues, to see problems come. But also, if we're really on about an ARC population of goal, what we want to be able to achieve is to understand the long-term management of this species. So if there does become a disease outbreak, a disaster, something happens that means we've got to keep these animals for a sustained period of time that we know we can keep them optimally and that we can ensure fitness through the generations of individuals so that an art population truly can exist because over time, each generation shows new levels of challenges. So I think it's a really exciting phase to involved in. It's an exciting time. And it's continuously just self-evaluating what we do, looking at areas we can prove and really trying to move the needle on what we think is optimal research, science and husbandry for the species.
0: Wow, that's a lot of different things and I'm sure we could unpack them, you know, in in different podcasts just to really think about, okay, so how do we, you know, create environments where animals can build muscle mass, you know, have strong bones, be flexible, all that. And uh, you recently built a new facility. So maybe you could start with, um, you know, explaining a little bit how you did it and with some of the information or what you've learned from animals in the wild how did you adapt the facility to come you know near some of these goals that you have for them to for example be physically fit and strong
1: yeah of course so we actually built the facility my team did it on island themselves which was a remarkable achievement for a three-person team we developed the facility and built it during covid um the facility comes from a range of stuff from evidence-based practices that we've learned through our field work but also through 30 years of experience of keeping the species we understand we had a model and a system that worked but actually what we were starting to see with longer term is issues as we kind of touched on in the broader sense but also we were seeing differences in growth size we were seeing differences in behavior between animals and smaller enclosures and larger so what we tried to do is look over all this data and see how we could apply that to the captive environment you know, we're very lucky here that we have natural conditions for them. So we wanted them to be open aired. One interesting thing, I think, from a captive husbandry perspective with reptiles, don't see with many other taxonomic groups is we have a tendency to build everything flat. When you look at all our big species or a lot of our enclosures, they're flat, there's some logs and stuff in, but predominantly they're flat. And that's really unusual. There's not many places in the world and Cayman is a pretty flat place as far as above sea level and its topography, but there's not many places in the world that are flat. And yes, we put branches and stuff in the enclosures, but then you're always having to incentivize the animal to go up them. Now there's ways you can do that. You can use food and enrichment to do that. And you can manipulate the environmental parameters so you can change the heat spot location or make the animal climb. But actually, that's constantly based around making movement. And for a lot of reptile species, including iguanas, actually that level of movement isn't that common. They're not always up to something for climbing or doing. A lot of their fitness comes from just their day-to-day living because topography, even just walking through their territory, requires up-down, topography through rocks, climbing, things that are driven just by their basic functions. So what we wanted to do is recreate that, give them these varying topography and give them choice you know, when we talk about captivity, one of the key things that changes it from the wild isn't that the wilds a wonderful place; it's a challenging place and harder. One of the key things we take away is choice, and one of the things we wanted to empower the animals with is giving them the choice back. And we haven't got time to go into it in depth here, but the response from the animals has been remarkable. Like right? the behaviour changes we see, the body language, the development of them, the growth. Um, the breeding introductions and successes. It's, it really has just shown the tip of the iceberg of what, what we thought we knew. We're seeing behaviours that we didn't see before. We allow for natural behaviours. So we want males not to be able to get to each other, but it's important they can see each other. Displaying is important for a rock iguana. Um, you know, the animals can pick and choose. Their gradients, their thermal gradients in their enclosure allows them to thermoregulate better. That's really important. They can move around with the sun or leave it. There's a misconception often with reptiles that the majority of their day is spent warming up but actually if you look to some of the clim- hotter climates in the world it's the opposite that's what we learn from our climate and a lot of us from zoos because we're in a colder area and it's based around that but actually if you look to the biology of them here they're out in sun pockets in the morning but the rest of their day is actually spent reducing body temperature getting to the shade so i think it's It's allowed us to learn things like that. And obviously with a large spacious enclosure, that's far more achievable than within like a two foot cube. So I think it's just giving them the credit that we see given to so many more taxonomic groups. You know, we are understanding intelligence, how to record it or measure it in species. But often we still overlook amphibians, reptiles, invertebrates as well because we don't understand how to measure that or read that intelligence. But what we're learning out here, and I know other projects as well, is that these animals are highly intelligent for their environment, highly adapted. The cognitive levels are far higher than we ever understood. I just don't think we've really understood the way to do that. So it's allowed for a lot of data collection for us. It's allowed for a choice, an enriched environment for the animals that isn't highly responsive to the keepers to provide because we run on a very small team we have over 200 iguanas it's not possible to do enrichment for every day so by creating these environments where enrichment is part of that environment you know, birds native reptiles can move in and out the only thing we control is iguanas or invasive species that we don't want in there and it's it's had huge implications and it will take time to really analyze and look at the effects that these changes will make but anecdotally um the, the first signs are fantastic we're seeing the results breeding season and the growth rates and but more importantly for me in the behavior of these captive animals it's far closer to matching what we see with our wild counterparts when we're studying them.
0: Yes absolutely and I think it's really such an important point we write about it in our 24-7 across lifespan paper Uh, from ecology we took this Approach of habitat management. So, what are the parameters? What are the indicators? What are the things that species need to survive well, to thrive well, actually? Uh, so, not just keeping alive, like you said, but thriving, flourishing, and uh, and really looking at how would you design environments for animals where they can have those choices, have that control, you know, do their thing that they have clearly evolved. Uh, for, for a very, very long time, instead of having to rely on like you say you have 200 animals, you have a lot of other things to do. So how can you make sure that environment provides all those options, including, you know, moving around and not the flatness. Uh, that is really so important to look at that and see how can we, you know, care for the animals, making sure that obviously they're flourishing, but that they can also be agents of their own lives, right? And you talked about how you built that facility, which which is, of course, amazing. You've talked about some of the challenges to the species. Can you talk us through what the day, you know, caring for these animals looks like? So just to get some glimpses, of what are some of the the activities that you do um, in and around where they live? Yeah,
1: of course. So our facility is based within the Queen Elizabeth Botanical Gardens, which is also, so our facility is fenced in. There's also a a sub-managed population within the Botanic Park of released iguanas that are managed in the sense that we have more presence in that area but we don't interfere with them. They're completely wild and breed naturally. All we do is be able to monitor them easier than within the reserves. So our day predominantly involves around the care and husbandry of the captive animals at the facility, which ranges any time between about 75 animals up to closer to 250, depending on the release schedules, the breeding success, and the seasons. Our day really is similar to most of what you would see within captive zoological collections in the sense that it's primarily focused around the animals and the husbandry of them Uh, we do observations reptiles are quite creatures of habit they're you know biologically focused to certain behaviors so we know where they will be in the mornings for basking so first thing we do is check on all the animals do visual checks reptiles will be out if you haven't seen them in time then it can be a strong indication that that might be an issue um we then focus the rest of our day really on basics around cleaning and husbandry Although they're in wild pens we obviously have an ethical responsibility to provide them with clean food clean water um, and to make sure that they're not sitting in environments with too much fecal matter or anything that build up to be a health issue so in those we have similarities one of the biggest differences we have is we're very fortunate to obviously be within the natural habitat of the iguanas so around the island comes a lot of food plants so over our studies we've identified about 150 different species a plant that makes up their diet and at the moment while availability is still available which is shifting but we feed a completely naturally sourced diet so every day we spend between three and five hours around the island collecting enough food to feed the iguanas which is about 15 kilos to feed the facility in a day and that changes massively here seasonally so we really work towards as much variety as we can and as i touched on we've seen a big shift with the nutritional variety having a real impact on the condition of the animals which therefore has an impact on the breeding season so it's incredibly important that we that we map that and then the rest of our day that takes up the majority of our day but then the rest of our day comes to a similar activity so collecting data how are we utilised in the collection we try to do research on the collection we have all our enclosures are predominantly replicas at the same size and habitat which makes it great for research so we can learn we work with students we work for local veterinary universities as well. We want to learn as much as we can about the species, why we have it. So that doesn't mean prodding, protein testing. Most of our observation work is hands off using camera traps or observational studies. But it's really important that we learn as much as we can while we have the species in captivity for whatever time frame that needs to be. Um, the rest of them, other reactive things can be our breeding season, eggs. We obviously do collect records and do health checks, which on that amount of iguanas takes up a long time. And then after that, we do monitor the population within the botanical park on a daily basis so that we can have an idea what's happening with them. Look for threats because the park is not fenced. It's only protected area in the sense that we own the land. It is not protected by that. And there is still a large invasive predator threat to blue iguanas. So we're constantly trying to get an idea what is going on. So our day is very similar to a lot of what you would imagine captive animal husbandry to be but actually we're freeing up a lot of time to focus on different things as we've improved the facility and moved away from wooden mesh cages the staff have managed to find time to refocus on different aspects of what we do we do do some enrichment we do scatter feeds we do some unnatural rich and some of the more long-term captives can have feed balls stuff like that but generally speaking because we're releasing the animals back to the wild and our cyclora become very um prone to habituating to people it's something we have to be really cautious of so we try to keep people involvement and food away from the animals as much as possible but like i say we try to create environments that are naturally enriching we will move things around we do basic changes we'll add new substrate or materials to environment or new plants because that's incredibly stimulating for them But most of the work we do inside the enclosures, we try to do in the morning before the animals wake up it's also incredibly hot here on Cayman, the majority of the year so we start very early in the morning um so that it's more humane working not for the staff because it can get to 35 36 degrees midday and nobody including the iguanas wants to be out in that Period.
0: Excellent. That's great. Yeah, that is really great. I love how you, you know, talk us through all these sorts of details and how some things are similar and how things are different and of course the safety of the animals and very much also how you're highlighting the collaborations with local universities and students and having that combination of caring for the animals of course conservation work continuous learning in both these domains through various research projects to you know make evidence-based decisions as we often talk about as well as obviously using common sense and and other aspects so that, that's really really important and uh, i would like to hear you know sometimes when you know i'm kind of referring to your facebook um posts <laughs> photos and so on and i'm hoping not, you know, I'm not going to, uh, but everybody check out, you know, otherwise the Grand Cayman Blue Iguana site, but uh, you have quite some personalities there, you know, of, uh, you know, iguanas, uh, beautiful, beautiful animals, but also some descriptions of of their personalities or the the things they do and like to do. So can you share some of those uh, personalities with us?
1: Yeah, of course. So it's actually been a really new thing for me. i Feel like sometimes in our tax industry, often we, we're very reluctant to amp anything, you know, because it, it can be a double-edged sword, you know. It can be a case of sometimes people will then start labeling, oh, she's lazy. It can, it can cause. Problems in regards to husbandry management decisions in regards to veterinary health checks, if misused, but I challenge anybody and it almost is impossible to work at the facility with these animals or even see them in the wild and not start to realise just how charismatic they are and what personalities they can have. You know how you quantify that from a behavior perspective how you which individuality you believe there is well that's all open for discussion and debate, far beyond this podcast but they are have got personalities or unequivocally individual personalities they're funny we have big dominant males they're a beautiful ambassador animal he wasn't meant to be an ambassador animal called peter he's famous because he was recently two years ago now in photographs of prince charles when he visited Cayman islands and he's a Strange little wild blue iguana hatchling that appeared, joined people at the lunch table, and has ever since been our only iguana that enjoys contact. And I don't use that very often because I think sometimes we like to label things as enjoying human interaction and contact that don't, but this animal actively seeks it. He will come over and stand by you, he will close his eyes, he seeks attention and seeks. Find reward from it so he's a remarkable animal a beautiful ambassador because he's always blue he's not a particularly great blue iguana and his breeding success hasn't been great he we've tried to release him and he comes back so a good job that they all aren't like him but he's a wonderful ambassador a big softy lights are on that it's interesting to see who's home sometimes but he is remarkable and then we move into some of these really charismatic females we have shy animals we have cheeky iguanas that are always up to no good, especially young boys. The young males are really ambitious. They're fit, they're healthy, they're jumping walls. Their drive to move around is is really strong. Um, so yeah, it, it, like I said, it's impossible to not, to not start assigning um, personalities and discovering that actually there's a lot of individuality within these iguanas. Um, and then trying to start to understand what that actually means, what implications that could have because there's no doubt that different iguanas react differently to different situations. There's no doubt they react differently. So it really does have to be a way that we can start to understand more, not just see it as cute, which it most certainly is and fun to work with, but start to understand what that sort of individuality could mean for conservation implications. So whether that be breeding pairs, whether it's release suitability, it may not be a case of if we release, but it could affect where we release um, whether that changes for age groups what the drivers and really understanding that because it's very new to us for reptiles to even have a personality a few years ago people would have argued completely but when we start going into not only do they have it but what implications could that have other than making them lovable little creatures um that is that is really interesting it's a point of fascination for me about whether you know we're, we're really just scratching the surface on what we understand about these animals
0: yes absolutely And it's really, you know, important, you know, personality is often included when, obviously, when we are talking about animal welfare more and more. So that's really good to see that, you know, really talking about species specific needs. And then, you know, what are the personalities that these animals have their temperaments? You know, what do they prefer? And and again, like you say, how can we use that information in conservation? And of course, also in when we are caring for the animals. So yeah, absolutely. So important, but it's it is interesting to see how you know things are changing with regards to who can have a personality, who can't, right? Just like you said, um, the perception of well, they they're probably not cognitively as smart as, but um, slowly, but surely, luckily, all these things are changing uh, for so many different animals. So that's really wonderful, and yeah, of course. But I think
1: it's really important that you know any platforms like this that we, we, we use a voice to still continue to push for that because i still think there's a huge discrepancy between um how we treat what we see what we deem as acceptable levels within the taxonomic group i study and with invertebrates uh, with aquatics with fish i think we've still got a long way to go to see them on an equal path some of that being led by we you know we don't have the data and science yet for those species behind it but actually what's encouraging and needs to continue is this Mindset shift that actually it's not acceptable that these animals' basic needs aren't met, and that we're that we're pushing further to understand more, as we've done with so many other taxonomic groups.
0: Yes, no, absolutely. That is really, you know, that's also, I guess, you know, what we are really trying to do uh, through the PAUSE platform is that translation of what we know through science. You know, there's quite a lot of research on cognition in reptiles and some amphibians and even in spiders and, you know, and fish pain and so on. And to making that information available in ways that is, um, you know, driving, of course, through the education systems, but also very much to mind shifts and heart shifts. You know, uh, if you like, how do we feel about these animals? And also how, you know, we should be, what you talked about ethics, duty of care, how should we be caring for these animals? So, and it's really great that, you know, different people in different ways are doing this through storytelling because of course, the blue iguana conservation, Um, The center has such an incredible, you know, you can see there's a lot of different programs going on. And uh, of course, some of that is uh, revolving mainly around conservation. But I'm sure there's probably also stories around the animals and how you care for them. So perhaps as we're kind of coming to the end of this podcast, you could talk a little bit about what sorts of conservation efforts uh, you are engaging in and in what ways you're trying to um, get people to to help
1: Yeah, of course. I think that one of the things this program did is it was so successful and became so embodied in the principles of science that at some point from its foundation days, it lost its connection to the local population here. There became misconceptions on blue iguana conservation that the species was saved. The project only ever put out positive news, which of course, you know, that's really important, but it's also important for transparency on challenges, but making sure we do that in a non-defeatist manner. So we do want to talk about the success. not phased out we've shown that if, no matter what a species declines to on a lot of occasions with action you can move forward but there is no future for the blue iguanas on Grand Cayman if it has not got the buy-in and support of the local Caymanian community you know, most of Grand Cayman for those who don't know is privately owned so a lot of it's private land there's very little crown land so these animals future will depend on the co- Operation of local communities, local farmers, local landowners, because buying enough land to conserve this species probably is unlikely. Land prices here are extortionate. So one of the things we really want to do, of course, do the science and research and breeding and the things that we've lightly covered during this podcast. But a fundamental principle that underpins all of it is our re-engagement with the community. Um, often we engage with school kids very well and always have. We have a very active school programme. Um, some of the adults people deem as not able to educate which just isn't true um but what we do have is a middle group a group of people that once they've left school we lose and that is a really influential age group for us an age group we want to impact and that decision time in your life where you're thinking of your careers you're thinking of what companies join what what way you want to grow and develop and what life you want that's a great age group to not lose people to make people start thinking of a greener future a way that they can adapt with blue iguanas and that kind of really underpins our five-year action plan we're, losing, we're launching Sorry, that we really want to speak to people about celebrate the success look at what can happen if you do it but understand this is a tipping point and that if we don't make these changes that all the 30 years of conservation efforts have put forward that blue iguanas will return to the situation they were in to some degree this species will always be conservation dependent but maybe not with a specific project but actually with the local communities So we re-engage, let's get people in, get the school kids engaged. Look at what we can do to capture and keep the imagination of the people that we lose, a middle-aged generation. Inspire people that the values of blue iguanas, their ecological niche that they fill, but also the value that ecotourism sometimes can be seen as a positive and negative. But if these animals can have monetary value, if they can bring financial value to the island if people understand their status within the global community, one of the reasons that we recently set up an international blue iguana day is this idea to give people something to celebrate. Be proud of having this species. be proud that you have a bright blue lizard which I challenge anybody to tell me isn't amazing. If we can capsulate that passion that they do have that the pride for it to be a Caymanian species, then that really embodies it in culture here and once that's done, this species has a future you know and there's lots of challenges coming to the species that we need people involvement with so food collection we've talked on the importance of nutritional variety for the species variation in diet Um, as land development continues and is a future for this island regardless of whether people want it or not it will continue we have to look for new ways to evolve you know stopping all development is not realistic and it will not happen and probably isn't the right move although controlling it to a sustainable direction is so what we need to look at is how can we get around that so we recently launched our iguana gardens initiative we've had an amazing response so we want people to grow food for our iguanas the natural weeds leave them encourage people to grow iguana food that we can get access to collect that can be land if you have it that can be people on their balcony with pots that produce flowers this is an amazing initiative, not only because it engages people in direct actions that can help species and um, makes them feel like they're doing something from home. You know, we've got 89 year old people growing plants. We've got seven year old kids growing plants. It's incredible. But also it's actually culturing something else as well, because our one is the predominantly native species. So actually within that, we're building a skill set and appreciation for native flora and flora. We're really getting people to understand how vital the system is you keep clearing this land, we're losing things like this so I think it's far stems over the blue iguanas are a wonderful flagship species people can relate to them but actually the implications of our conservation efforts are going to be far afield from just blue iguanas which is really exciting for us and like I say it's crucial citizen science is something we're really pushing now to get people involved and engaged with our project help us with data collection we as you touched on a training is fundamental key embodied into all our practices is develop the in-situ capacity to do it you know getting a work permit to work on Grand Cayman is incredibly difficult and it's an incredibly expensive place to live but there's limited opportunities for Caymanians to work for them to get the schooling needed to without leaving the island which some don't want to do to, to have an active role in conservation so we see our commitment to training and developing good fundamental and really key to what we want to achieve you know we want to build the skills here in ireland so that commanders can look after their own species and be proud of it because long term that's going to be fundamental we can't keep having people come in and support and fund the project so it's a very exciting time um, i'm wonderful to see the re-engagement of the communities the passion the uproar for the challenges that still face this species and the Education campaign to let people know the job isn't done. Um, it's, It's really encouraging to see such a positive response to the fact that this challenge has got to continue and that we've got a long way to go before we can say we have a sustaining population of blue iguanas.
0: Wonderful. That's all sounds wonderful. We have to, you know, make sure there's going to be links so people can follow your work and also in potential ways that they could support this really important work that you and of course the people there all together are doing and you know, we could continue to talk about these these wonderful animals and all this research, and I already look forward to uh, to reading some of this. And 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 you and I have been talking about maybe some welfare work, so really looking forward to that as well. But at the end of every podcast, we always ask, you know, our speakers, our podcasters, to share, you know an animal story that really touched their heart or some something a success story anything so putting you on the spot here do you have a story for us to conclude this podcast please Luke
1: yeah I I guess my story is that I have is to be inspired still and not lose the passion and enthusiasm I think it's a very hard career sometimes to to be in it can be a roller coaster it's emotionally challenging it can be financially challenging it can be very hard to keep perspective perspective that the thing you're doing in life isn't worth sacrificing anything in it for and there's moments i think that define it all that make it all worthwhile and i think one of them for me will be going to komodo i was very fortunate to join the survey team in komodo and although it's not a specific moment seeing those animals in the wild is and remains a highlight of my working life but my personal life as well it is truly incredible you really start to understand how well adapted they are to their environment how charismatic they are you know they're one of the last apex reptile predators it is a truly life moving moment for me it was a goal and it's still to this day those images those pictures those memories really push me to continue in the field and develop so i would encourage everyone to find that moment enjoy it and try to go out there and make experiences happen because. When you can find those moments, they really fuel you through all the challenges and make all the hours, sacrifices, commitments worthwhile.
0: Yes, absolutely. That's what we call vicarious resilience. You're living, you know, it fuels you uh, and it builds your resilience to, you know, bounce back from all the other hardships that you just mentioned. So absolutely. Thank you so much, Luke, for sharing. And thank you very much for coming onto the podcast and very much looking forward to connecting with you again in the future. Thank
1: you so much again for having me and thank you to everybody for listening.
0: So the end of another wonderful podcast all about, you know, conservation and wonderful animals and you know, make sure to check out all the links that go with it and see also how you can support either this project or any other project that is near and dear to your heart. And well-being for you and your animals is too important not to get right and at Animal Concepts we help you care for animals and for yourself to be at your best to achieve excellence in animal care and welfare. And PAUSE is the first online platform combining human and animal well-being science and practice where you can get the education and tools you need so you and your animals can flourish. So follow the link in the podcast description to become a member today.